welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, dog welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, we're talking to Dr. Charles Van Rees, who is our conservation correspondent, all about getting academic research published. Welcome back to the podcast, Charles. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Very nice to be back here with you, Kayla. Yeah, always. Um, so for everyone at home, Charles is a little bit of an expert on this. Um, there's a really good reason we brought him on for this episode. He's got 22 publications under his belt, two peer-reviewed academic book chapters, and a bunch of papers on the way. In short, he's absolutely the person we want to be talking to about this topic. Um, and again, the goal here is kind of figuring out how to get from this point where, okay, our dogs have detected some data. Now, how do we actually turn that into a journal article and further science? And and make the bigger impacts that we're really interested in making. Um, I'm really excited about this interview and we're actually going to skip the science highlight because this episode is going to be lengthy and dense enough without it. So let's jump in with um, kind of a broad picture question, Charles, of how is getting published in academia the same or different from publishing in kind of other venues? I think this is actually a really good place to start. This is certainly the kind of conversation that I would have loved to overhear when I was starting graduate school uh, a decade ago now, because <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think it is, it is kind of a weird concept to grasp academic publishing, and people just don't talk about it enough yeah. in, in a couple of ways, and, and that, that leads to two major misconceptions, I think. So, so one of those is that it's the same as other kinds of publishing, which you know, you may or may not understand very well, depending on what your background is in the first place. But it's not the same as writing newspaper articles or columns or mm -hmm. guest posts on a blog or anything like that. For one thing, uh, you don't get paid to do it. <laughs> we don't need to get into that side uh -huh. of it just yet. But, but you know, it's, it's not one of those things where you are the the asset right that people are competing over you are competing for the the opportunity to publish in academia which mm. is an interesting interesting change of pace and there are other differences too which which we'll get into right the, the peer review process is a major one but there are things that make this a very different world and as a result it is a very different culture with different norms and different practices and different assumptions and so you can't come into it thinking about it the same way it's going to be a whole different world on the second side of things, though, is also the other misconception, which is that it's so different than every other kind of publishing. So I know that, that sounds kind of <laughs> conflicting, contradictory, but in fact, there are also a lot of aspects of scientific publication that are the same. Uh, one of the major ones, of course, is, yeah, peer review. Yes, we have all these processes of vetting, right? We need citations, we need support for things, people to demonstrate things. But it still has, you know, a lot of the issues you, you would run into with other forms of publishing, other forms of writing. It is still fallible. It is still done by people. Uh, people still make mistakes. There are still judgment calls. And there's no, even if it is academic, it has all these, these practices involved with it, these, these best practices, if you will. There are still very many different ways of doing any individual thing you want to do in academic publishing. You want to write a certain paper. 
just like any other kind of essay or article, you can still you still have to develop a pitch. You still have to appeal to people. You still have to be convincing. You still mm-hmm. have to do all these things, even though it is a drier, different, more formalized process with its own rules. But we'll get into that. But yeah, so rudely enough, two major things I want people to know. It's very different than other kinds of publishing. In some ways, it's exactly like other kinds of publishing and communication in other ways. Hopefully that okay. actually comes across somewhat coherently and isn't total nonsense. Clear as but yeah. But I think we'll get into it. I think we're going to kind of explore that. And I think that is a really good point that like, yes, in a lot of ways it is really different. However, it's not on this like infallible pedestal where, you know, the peer review process inherently means that everything is going to be perfect. Um yeah, and we're going to get yeah, into the peer process for as we go So um, let's say you've got an idea for some research, or maybe you already even have a data set. So, and this is where I'm at. We took a bunch of data on something that we were doing. We have <laughs> spreadsheets on spreadsheets on spreadsheets, and we think we've got something here. What is kind of the, f- the next step um, as far as trying to move from data to publishing. I, I don't want to start too zoomed out here, so maybe I'll be a little quick. There okay. are lots of different kinds of papers, and so there are a lot, and as a result of that, there are lots of different types of messages that you can get out or that you might be shooting for. When you're starting from a data set, the, the most zoomed out view is just, is this a data set that lots of people want to see just by nature of the fact that it's an awesome data set? Or is it telling us some story that I, in particular, want to get across in a scientific publication? Okay. And this distinction is probably, I mean, I think 99% of listeners would be on the story side. 1% might be on the data set side. But sometimes people bring together these gigantic data sets, whether they collected them themselves or they assembled them from lots of other work. And they actually publish what's called a data paper, which is literally just a paper telling the world, hey, this data set exists. Here's where you can access it. Knock yourselves out. Um, and usually, you know, that's only going to come again. I said, have fun kids. (laughs) Yeah. And of course you're only going to do that if it's something worth having fun with, right? If it's maybe like a, I don't know, global occurrence data set of all the large predators or something like that, just some massive thing that people can use to ask lots of different questions. That's worthy of a data paper or something. But again, 99% of the time, that's not what's going on. People have Mm -hmm. their own small scale data that they collected for a particular project. Now, usually you will have collected those data for a purpose. You had some question. And so that's that's a good place to start. So then you're going to analyze those data and see if they tell you some story about that question you want to ask. Or maybe you already have the data because they were collected for some other reason. Maybe they were either collected for a different project or they were collected because of some mandated monitoring plan or something like that, depending on where funding is coming from or the type of projects you're working with. Then you're going to analyze those data and ask some questions about them, right? Can they teach me anything about these things? Mm-hmm. And so, of course, then you have to get into all the math stuff, which probably we'll talk about some other time. But if you're at the point where you want to write a paper about something, you have those data and you have used them. You have, you have kind of put them to the test, right, with, with some form of mathematical inference to test hypotheses, ask questions, see if they show you something. And now you want to tell a story about it. You have found something that you're like, yeah, you know what? This is interesting. 
I want people to know about this. That's where we start. Okay. That makes sense. So yeah, so you kind of start once you've got your data set, you do a little bit of exploring to kind of see, okay, we think we've got a story here. We, um, you know, maybe you've done some kind of preliminary analysis, um, but now you're at this point of, okay, we're going to actually take this to the next level. I would imagine at this point now, you'd be starting to think about potential co-authors and people you want to bring in if you don't already kind of have that team assembled from day one. Is would that make sense? And if so, then how do you find and approach potential co-authors for a paper? Who do you need on board? Mm -hmm. Okay, so there, there are a couple kind of things worth talking about there. So, so one, I would say you don't, you generally don't start writing or planning a paper until you have actually done not just preliminary data analysis. I mean, you have you have oh okay analyzed your data and found that they, you know support or do not support some hypothesis and decided that that result is already something interesting enough that you want to publish. Co-authorship on papers is one of those things that is not very well formalized. There are lots of different cultural norms around it. To start with, the first people that are going to be involved with any paper coming out of your research are, are the people that you've been already collaborating with on that work, right? If they made, if they made some efforts that without which the work would not have been done, the data would not have been collected, they would not have been analyzed, whatever. And those are going to be some of your kind of automatic shoe-in co-authors, right? I will think a lot of other rules about this, but I think a lot of the, the more ethical and <laughs> respectable rules I've seen uh, around this issue have to do with that. Could the work have been done with that, without that person or not? If not, you know, and if co-authorship provides them some professional benefit, which is another thing we should talk about, um, then they should be on there. I I do a lot of work uh, more recently, especially working kind of more on like the conservation policy and conservation kind of vision side of things lately. I've been writing a lot of papers that don't involve data, right? These are these are uh, reviews or syntheses of scientific knowledge, or they are perspectives and opinions illustrating how we can move forward and advance the field. Those have a lot less to do with who is providing a data set or who taught me some method or who blah, blah, blah and more to do with the writing process. So that's kind of the second level in which you might be taking out co-authors. And I think this is more what you're asking about, and I'm sorry for taking so long to get to that, but um, there's obviously a lot here, and I want to make sure I'm providing enough background because this is a, this is a big field that people just don't talk about it enough. So also yeah. my idea for a podcast, by the way. <laughs> so to finally get to your question, um, the people, yeah, so you, you basically... I always think of co-author teams when it comes to the actual writing process as kind of being like the Avengers, right? Or some superhero team. You want people with different skills that are complementary to get to get the paper done and done right. So you may have already gotten some people involved who are uh, analysts. Maybe you provided the data, you had the questions, and you were like, gosh, you know, I don't have the statistical expertise to ask these questions. Or I thought I did, and then I looked in the literature, and people are analyzing these types of data with totally different analyses that I don't know how to do. And so maybe you found some colleague who did, and they either showed you how to do it, or they did it for you. Okay, now suddenly you have somebody else, you know, doing the results yeah. portion of the paper, right? So that's one kind of Avenger, right, where they have one set of skills. Uh, my, my skills, for example, I, I tend to be really, really comfortable with science writing. I have lots of colleagues that are incredible data anal analysts, or they, you know, they, they're super experts in fields X, Y, Z. 
then it comes time to writing a paper and it sits on their desk for two years because they're just like, I can't look at a blank page. I can't do that. For me, you know, I'll, I'll have a bowl of cereal and a cup of coffee and I can, you know, if I know the stuff to write, I can crank out half a scientific paper in the morning. Yeah. It's just, I just like it. It's fun. I love scientific writing. And so I'm that yeah. kind of avenger. And I've actually, you know, I've, I've been brought onto papers before because people are like, listen, like the work is done here. We have no idea how to write about this. Do you think you could turn this into a paper? I'm like, oh, absolutely. Right. And, and then yeah, I do what's easy for me. They do what's easy for them. And as a team, it works out. So that's, that's perfect. What I would say is when you're looking to build your Avengers and get a paper written, think about your skill sets. Think about what experience, what you want to get experience for, especially if we're talking about people like us who are earlier in their careers. Mm -hmm. And think, okay, do, do I need someone to mentor me on this? Do I need someone to just do some of this work? Do I feel comfortable writing all these sections? Um, would someone else's expertise be, be helpful here? And would they actually contribute <laughs> to the process? <laughs> right. Another issue entirely, but like deadbeat co-authors are a thing, and that's really hard to navigate um, ethically, right? If you have someone that you invited, it's really difficult to be like, well, you shouldn't be on this paper. But um, sometimes people don't right. pull their weight, and that is hard. So you want to be careful with that, too. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that that's my answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for that. And um, I guess one, and this, I don't even know if this is a, really an answerable question, but say hypothetically, you're someone who runs a conservation detection dog organization um, okay. and you're not embedded in academia. You can't just right. like walk down to the stats department and make some friends. Um, you don't necessarily have friends in genomics labs. Like, is do you just get on twitter like how do <laughs> where do you find yeah. these people if you're not embedded in academia okay so that's a really good point so if we're talking from the perspective of probably a lot of our audience right we have people who might be mm -hmm. might have dogs detecting data as it were who have data sets that they're interested in analyzing slash publishing on etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah, you need to be, you know, that, that that's your Avengers skill, right? You're producing the darn mm -hmm. data, which is huge. Mm -hmm. uh, you want people who can ask questions about that those data or who can turn questions into math to use those yeah. data. Yeah, I feel like that's our gap. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sure. And, and who can, and who can no. do, you know, a bunch of writing, et cetera. You, you obviously are an amazing writer, you know, so that might not be exactly, you know, something that you're looking for, but on the other side. So... Yeah, I think this is where it starts to be a lot more similar to other kinds of writing. Then it becomes more about making a pitch, but you're making a pitch to a collaborator. And this, this you know, goes more broadly than scientific papers, right? This is just collaboration and science in general. There are lots, especially at academic institutions, there are lots of really cool people or absolute stats whizzes who are really interested in this stuff, who are just excited to have a data set to play with. And that's all. And if you can provide that yeah. for them, that is so cool and so fun for them. And they will crank that stuff out. And then, of course, you get a very productive collaboration. I think the late E.O. Wilson talked about that in one of his one of his books that was uh, kind of an advice book for early career scientists. Like, you don't have to be the best at everything. You can find people who complement your skills and do a lot. So the way to approach yeah. those types of people is if you are let's say someone in Kayla Frat or something like that. So what, what I would do, yeah, Twitter's a great, a great one. There are lots of mm -hmm. um, academics on Twitter. Otherwise, looking at, you know, statistic departments of statistics or people who identify as bioinformaticians or eco-informaticians or something like that, people who mm -hmm. are making it very known that they are, you know, statistically inclined ecologists. I'm um, looking at their 
at department websites and things like that and contacting people directly by email. But then you have to make a pitch like you would with an article saying, hey, look, yeah. I've got these data. We're interested in asking these questions. Would you want to you know, have a phone call sometime? We can talk about maybe the potential collaboration. I'm just looking to get some of this some of this work published because I yeah. think there might be some interesting things we can do with it, right? And what you have to sell is how robust are these data? How much information are you bringing to the table? Why is it interesting? What kind of questions might be asked? Um, and that all depends on kind of how, how far your knowledge and thinking goes on it, right? Because you could just as well have the same conversation of, well, what questions should we ask? What questions could we ask with this? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, okay. So then next up, thinking about, okay, so maybe now we've kind of got the data, we're starting to analyze, we're starting to get some of our answers, and now we're really thinking about writing do you generally have a journal in mind that you're writing for and you've got like this target audience or do you kind of write the paper and then figure out where it's going to fit best within kind of the journal world? Cause yeah. And, and other questions stem from that. Okay. All right. I'll lose those. This sounds exciting. I always start with the journal in mind. I always start with an audience in mind. And, mm -hmm. and of course, if you're just like with any other kind of writing or journalism, you already need to know your story, right? Um, mm -hmm. To pick the audience, or at least you already need to know kind of your point a little bit. So you need to know by this point what came out of your data, what are those findings, perhaps. Um, once you have an idea of what you can be putting forward, then you then you figure out what might be the best pitch for that story, and then you know what kind of audience you're trying to hit. So when it comes to academic publication you're not looking at the general public really right it, it, very few yeah. academic journals have that kind of reach you're looking for usually what disciplines do you want to be communicating with okay. and sometimes okay you know do different countries have different readership and things like that but mostly it's like all right do i want to talk to ecologists who are people who are studying how nature works from a very theoretical perspective or do i want to be talking to conservationists who are people who are trying to get stuff done uh, and have very particular goals for management or practice, mm -hmm. right? Those are going to be different journals. Um, academics typically will, you know, only tune into a few different journals that they think really reflect what they're doing. And so there is a, a lot of careful choice there. So the resource for that is to, I would say, um, when you're looking through the literature, Look for people who are doing similar stuff to what you did. Maybe search some certain keywords, things like that, and see what journals they published in. It's a great yeah. place to start. Because then you can say, okay, well, not only like, okay, does, did this person decide it was a good idea to publish here, but that journal tends to like that kind of stuff. That's a good way to start. Sure. Mm -hmm. Do um, these journals? Uh, do these journals tend to? Um, have any publishing guidelines or anything like is there a word count like are there formatting requirements and are those things easily available or do you just have to magically know this from you know your undergrad advisor who may or may not have actually been that helpful <laughs> whoa uh, you read my mind <laughs> so uh, was, well, I, I mean I, I feel like th this is like this is a little bit of an aside but as we were planning this episode i kept thinking like 
I feel like I should have learned a lot of this in undergrad. Like this should have been covered at some point in one of my gajillion 300 and 400 level ecology and conservation biology classes. Like, I don't understand why I have so many basic questions about this still. In my experience, it's very much a grad school thing because people yeah. don't typically expect you to publish this in undergraduate. And it's like, cool if you do, but I don't think anyone like wants to push anyone that hard most of the time. Who's telling that to the grad school entrance committees? Because <laughs> it seems like they all think we should be publishing. You are absolutely correct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, no, exactly. It's, it's so, yeah. So, so my experience has been getting getting this type of knowledge. I, I agree with you, first of all. It should be out there more. And so I'm actually really excited for this podcast to be out there as a resource yeah. for people because you don't have to do anything with conservation or dogs. If you're just in science in your early career, this kind of conversation is something that yeah. you might really benefit from. I, I would have hugely benefited from this, so I'm glad we're talking about it. Um, and, and this also goes for just broader early career science advice. Like That's why, as an undergraduate, you need to seek out research opportunities and find a lab that you can do yeah. some work for. Because And, I, and I, I did not do this as an undergraduate, and it really hurt me, I me think. Um, yeah. But in that process, if you're you know really gung-ho and really putting a lot of energy into it, a lot of time you can get take part in a paper or do the research that gets you know put into a paper and then you get that direct mentoring of someone like, all right this is how we're going to do this this is we're going to do this and that answers a lot of your questions but yes there's there's yeah. no coursework for that um and i think i think schools should think about that i mean obviously not everyone going for their undergraduate in wildlife or ecology wants to go be an academic right and they shouldn't have right. to learn how to do this stuff if they don't want to but what if they do why not have a seminar yeah. or something for the seniors or whatever that want to go into grad exactly. school next year? That would be cool. Yeah. Like my, my undergrad had a really cool class called biostatistics and experimental design, which I took, which I feel like is why I have more questions about the post-experiment process because I, I do feel like I did have that one 400 level class that was really awesome as far as like how to actually plan science and then do mm -hmm. some of the data crunching. I still have a lot of work to do there, um, especially because honestly, yeah, yeah. even in like the six years since I graduated, I feel like it's changed so much. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, <laughs> um, I've already forgotten the question I had asked you. Okay. <laughs> um, so we were talking about, you, you asked a real good follow-up question, which was something that I was really hoping to get to anyway, which was like, okay, yeah, we want to pick a we want to pick a journal or a venue to be publishing in. We've looked online. We've found some journals that might be good candidates because they have published other stuff on these topics, perhaps. So what you do next is you go to their website, and and your question was like, do we just have to like figure it out for ourselves? Is this information available? And the answer is, luckily, for any good respectable journal, they will have what they call guidelines for authors, and these are very clear, oh, right. and they they should be very clear. If they're not, maybe don't publish there. But like, mm -hmm. they should be laying out exactly what they want now not only are there different journals that have different cultures around how they go through the process of considering a paper every journal usually has several different formats of paper that they publish right okay and this also has to do with what you did and what kind of story you want to tell so i can give you just a couple like kind of basic ones but they always have schmancy names for them and like all mm -hmm. this stuff it's really it's just you just got to read them but they will all, they, ideally, they will always give you a word count they want. Sometimes there are limits in the number of citations they allow because how much space it can take up if you have too many. I yeah. have a bit of a soapbox thing about that, but 
we don't need to get into that right now. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> so the, the really typical thing is usually what they just call a research paper. And this is just for original research. This is like, I did some research. I'm going to, this is what we kind of get trained to do as an undergrad, you know, doing lab reports and things. This is why it's important. This is what I did. Here are my results. This is what I think about them, right? Intro, methods, results, discussion. Typical. Yeah. They're probably, I don't know, I think they're probably around like three, three to 5,000 words is, is typical for them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, standard. Then there are things like reviews, where intentionally they just want you to be bringing together tons of crap from all over the literature, bringing together some some you know new insights about all of that, or coming to some meta analytical conclusion, or not. Um, and those are typically longer. Those, are, you know, those yeah. could be six to eight thousand, depending on the journal. There are things like commentaries, which is like I'm just going to share an opinion I have. It's kind of like an academic hot take, except it has to be very well researched. Um, and very mm -hmm. interesting, right? But that could be a thousand words. Gotcha. Uh, some of these are really small. I, I'm working on a paper right now with a bunch of my colleagues uh, for you know one of these high-profile uh, journals that everybody reads. But they they keep their articles really short on purpose. Yeah. So we have to like turn this huge, super academically informed opinion we have into essentially like you know a really well defended hot take in like fifteen hundred, two thousand words, and like it's really hard. Wow. But it's, you know, yeah, it's I think a that's a good point. Is that like, at first, some people be might be like, "Oh my God, like three thousand words. That's like pretty doable." And it's like, actually, your problem is potentially more likely to be trying to cut it down to that size versus like, don't be daunted. You definitely don't have to write two hundred pages here. However, mm -hmm. like getting some of this stuff down to three thousand words or fifteen hundred words is actually pretty tough in a different way. Yeah, and I think that's the problem you want to have is cutting it down. The writing will be better yeah. if you're starting big and cutting down, I think. But yes, uh, you know, graduate dissertations and things that can be hundreds of pages. This is not that. This needs to be, again, because yeah. you're working now with a company that is uh, for profit or not. They are publishing this stuff and trying to maintain a certain profit or, or margin, right, financially or whatever. They will limit your space typically. And so you have yeah. to be very uh, concise and you want people to be able to read what you're saying. So yeah, don't be afraid of the writing process. It's not going to be hundreds of pages. You know, 15 pages is a pretty long scientific paper, including, you yeah. know, citations and stuff like that. Yeah, which again is, yeah, it's doable in some ways. And, and then in other ways, it's a lot, a um, lot of works. So then the next thing is to so say you've kind of got it written, you've got it drafted, you've gone through all the editing, we're not going to go over editing and those sorts of things. But then when you submit is there a strategy to submitting? Are there due mm -hmm. dates where they're like, okay, submit now in order to be in third quarter's uh, journal? Does it vary a lot? Is it better to mm -hmm. try to figure out like a strategic time to submit? Like, I don't know. Does nobody publish in Q4? Um, <laughs> right, like... right. Well, let's see. Me not knowing what Q4 is will probably tell you a bit on oh. that. But uh, that yeah, might that's just, just the last three months of the year. Oh, okay. Uh, so that's talk. just like strategically uh, speaking, is it potentially less competitive <laughs> to try to publish in January editions because nobody's got anything done right after the holidays or something? Like, I don't know. This is also yeah, me yeah, kind of yeah. taking my like freelance writing side <laughs> of things and kind of doing some of this, you know, strategic uh, tomfoolery <laughs> there. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. I think there are times that are better and worse. And 
I don't think I know which ones they are necessarily. <laughs> well, I, maybe I, it varies I, from journal to journal too. You know, it could I don't in know. communities. Yeah, um, I know that like a lot of journal work gets is sort of unpaid, like by both editors and writers, and so a lot of people like tend to get stuff done on Sundays. So I, I would imagine, like, mm -hmm. if you were picking a day to submit, I would not do Sunday. Um, it. I always get reviews yeah. back from people on a Sunday, which means that like the people who are supposed to read the paper just put it off for three weeks, and then that last Sunday they did it all usually because they like had a, had a bit of time. Um, that's just kind yeah. of part of how academia works. So there probably is some strategy there. I I don't know it or pay too much attention to it. Relevant story. I mean, I, I had a you know a bunch of papers that were in review during the pandemic. They all took eight to nine to ten months to a year longer than they should have to get published oh my God. because of how much people didn't have time or people kept getting sick and dropping off so right. they couldn't review they had to bring in new reviewers you know so that was probably a really bad time to do it because everybody was publishing generally no you will not have you will not have clear deadlines yes publishing at different times a year will depend will influence whether or not your paper gets published that year or the year after but that also has to do with how often that journal releases issues and how long it takes for them to do their process. Some journals take a lot of pride in being very quick. Other ones don't really care. Other ones are just exceedingly sluggish. So yeah, those, I guess those are things to think about. In my opinion, it's more important that the work gets published and gets done right. And I'm not going to pay as much attention to, to, to when everything happens. Okay. To backtrack a tiny bit to your point about like the tone of the paper and who you're pitching it to and things. So yes, every journal will give you the guidelines for authors, which is what kind of paper, what kind of papers they publish um, in terms mm -hmm. of different like formats that you have to cater to when you're writing. The other thing that they'll have sometimes in the author guidelines, sometimes in like the about page of the journal is just an account of like the, what they call the journal scope. This is another very good author guidelines, journal okay. scope. These are the two big vocab things you want to look for on the website. Journal scope is what do we publish? What do we like as a journal? And you want to obviously find a journal whose scope fits the story that you want to tell. And then, you know, if you're being very strategic about it, then in your introduction, which is the part of your paper where you are pitching it, right, you will be trying to use a lot of those keywords and link to a lot of those key uh, concepts and disciplines or, or citing research from those disciplines so that they know you are coming at it from the lens that they identify with. Okay. Uh, last thing, only exception to like, deadline or not, because I'm saying there's never a deadline for these things. Sometimes you get, uh, there are two other kind of cases that could happen. Sometimes you might get invited to publish somewhere, which is really cool. Sure. Ooh, yeah, so if you, nice. I don't know, are an expert at, on something or you met someone at a conference and they're doing, mm. they want to publish a series of papers in general, they will actually solicit you to write the paper. Then you typically have a deadline. They will be like, listen, we're, we're commissioning yeah. you to write this. So what they call it a commission. They're not going to pay you, but it's a commission. Um, then you, you will typically have a deadline. Are those deadlines extraordinarily negotiable? Yes, 99% of the time. If he was like, oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't do it. Then I thought, it's fine, whatever, two weeks, you know, whatever. That's fine. Sure, um, okay. It's, okay. Not, it's not like in school. No one's going to give you an F because they can't. <laughs> uh, uh, you can just walk away from paying you. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I mean, of course, you know, if it's a really great journal, that's really exciting. You can also yeah, no, get no, them, yeah. you can also get them to commission you 
by sending in what's called a pre-submission proposal, which some journals do, some journals don't. It's all a matter of their culture. Some of the really okay. high-profile journals do this because they don't want people to waste their time writing for that journal if they're going to just get rejected you know, 90% of the time. So I've done this um, with some other big journals in the past where you actually write like a two-page pitch, like just a, just a yeah. journalist pitch of like, this is why this paper would be totally sweet. This is what we're going to do. This is why it's important. And this is why your audience is going to love it. And then you, yeah. know, you spend a lot less time than writing the whole paper. They read it. And then some editor can be like, oh, yeah, totally, totally. Or they can be like, no, sorry, I think you should go somewhere else. Sometimes they'll be really nice. And they'll actually tell you where they think you should send it. Um, mm -hmm. Some of these for-profit publishers, obviously, they're going to always tell you where to send it. And it's going to be wherever makes them a buck. So got to be a little careful. But yeah. that is one, um, one other way to get commissioned is if you send in a proposal, they like it. They're like, all right. Send us a draft by de by date X Y, you know, and then then you have yeah. a bit of a time limit. Um, and the last way that happens is with with what is called special issues. So sometimes a journal will say we're going to have an issue that's just dedicated to this one topic. I'm pretty sure there was one on conservation dogs in some conservation journal in the last yeah. five years, right? Um, I, yeah, so I, that happens. Wildlife bio, mm -hmm. maybe I can't remember bio one. I can't remember. Sounds about right. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. one of those. So if that happens, which is like you know that's bound to happen again with conservation dogs and could be an opportunity for some of our listeners if you if you then apply or, or get invited to be part of a special issue they usually are like we need this done at this time and so that's sure. one of those one of those exceptions where you absolutely have to have it done okay that should do it <laughs> okay no that makes sense and that's really really helpful and um i think so the only article the only journal i've been published in so far has been the IABC journal, which is peer reviewed, but it's a very small journal. And I have a really good personal relationship with the editor. And I think I've been kind of taking oh, cool. that route of, you know, I'll kind of send an idea, ask when their due date is for, because they, they have kind of these due dates for quarterly submission where they're like, if you want to make sure that you get into, you know, the fall edition, you need to be in by this date so we can actually complete peer review. Um, mm -hmm. So that was kind of the only experience that I've had um, on that side of things. Uh, and I guess that does bring up another question, like how do you know any editors where you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know the guy, uh, you know, journal of, you know, Charles's research dot org. Um, <laughs> and cool. they generally, you know, I know how to kind of reach out to them and check in on what they're interested in. And like, is that common or would that be kind of frowned upon? Great question. And this comes into our two misconceptions, right? Like on one side, academic publishing is so different because it's does all this anonymous peer review and there's yeah. so much attention to conflict of interest and there's so much drive towards some somewhat more objective way of gauging knowledge and stuff like that. But it's still a human endeavor. <laughs> people are just still people. And so just like in other forms of journalism, yeah, like Connections do matter, yeah. And the way that they matter, and the and the extent to which they influence the academic publication process is extremely variable, and at times totally not okay. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm just going to say that outright. It it there is a lot of cronyism. There is a lot of weird. Like there are lots of people I think who I'm not trying to be too cynical here. Okay, but. You know, I've talked to senior scientists about this too. Like, there are people who are extremely prestigious who, if their name's on the paper, it's going to get published 
where they send it. Like sure. they're just yeah, going to yeah. get in. You know what I mean? So there is that. Um, I have friends who are editors for journals. And usually what happens is, for example, a really good friend of mine, Kevin Burgio, is an absolutely fantastic, uh, brilliant morphologist. He, I'm not sure if he is anymore, but for a long time, he was a subject editor in like conservation at a really good bird journal run out of um, the Ornithological Society of Canada, probably butchering that name. And I submitted a paper there, and it was a conservation paper because I'm a conservation guy. And so, of course, it would have gone to him, but he recused himself because he knows me. That, you know, that, that's the, gotcha. mm-hmm. the kind of ethical behavior that is expected. I don't think it always happens, but he was like, no, I know this guy. I can't review this paper. I can't even look at who, who it goes to. I can't be a part of this. And that's fine. So that's what we expect to happen. It does not always happen. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, that makes sense. There's nothing wrong with asking ahead of time about a paper, right? You can't be like, oh, will this be accepted? Like, they can't say that. Sure, but yeah. Even if, you, even if you don't know the editor, but especially if you do, there's nothing wrong with just sending them maybe an abstract and saying, I just wanted to check with you. I've, I've done this a lot with, with editors that I don't know. I'll send them an abstract or, again, a pre-submission, but like, I don't want to bother you too much, but like, if you have a second, could you just maybe tell me whether you think this would be of interest to the journal? I want to know. I'm considering. Yeah. Am I even on the here. right track? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And they might just be like, no. And that's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've better know that now. Most people are really nice. And if they're going to say no, they're usually like, no, but like, see this other place. So. Yeah. Okay. So then after submission, um, do you get accepted and then peer reviewed or peer reviewed and then accepted? Does it matter? Like, or does it vary? Uh, okay, so yeah, we can get into the, we'll get into the vocab then. So accepted, yeah. accepted means we are going to publish your paper. So that's very late in the game. What you're dealing with first step is whether you go out for a review, which is what people typically call it, or whether you get what's called desk rejected. A desk rejection is the editor reads your paper that you submitted, and they're like. Nah. And, you know, that's either they don't think that the science is good quality. They don't think the writing is good quality. You maybe didn't fit all the formatting requirements that they put in their guidelines for authors. Or they just read it and they're like, you know what, this pitch doesn't work for me. I don't find it compelling. Or this isn't the right topic. I've been just rejected from journals that were that got back to me. And they were like, dude, this isn't a real good paper. This is just not what we're talking about. So, yeah, like, go somewhere else. Good luck. Like, this is great. I'm not trying to say it's bad, but we, we're not going to publish this. And I'm like, cool, thanks. Right? And, and usually you can avoid that by touching base ahead of time, but it can't it can happen. That's your first stage. If you pass that stage, then usually someone's going to be the what's called the handling depending on the size of the journal there's going to be maybe someone called a handling editor whose job it is that from this point on to be your papers um, shepherd through the process yeah (laughs) yeah and so they have to find people to review your paper increasingly uh the labor involved with all of that is 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 more and more put on the authors so nowadays you are encouraged sometimes required to provide a list of two to three to five suggested reviewers for your paper mm-hmm. and of course you don't want to put people you know because that's again the cronies that you don't want to be doing that and um 
that's just kind of on you to be ethical, I think, unless they can figure it out. You want to suggest people who are who have published on your topic recently, who are experts on it, but who are not attached to you in some way. You don't know them, okay? Um, or you're you know you're not close in any way, and you think they would give you. Yeah, a I was going to say, God, I feel like in the conservation dog world, it would be tricky. I, like I could definitely be like, well, I literally worked with Megan Parker for two years, so I'm not going to suggest yeah. her. But like Tracy from Skyless Ecology, like you know, I've had her on the podcast twice. We're like vague internet friends versus you know mm -hmm. totally different and, and then there are other people that i know even less well but sure. it, we're probably still like linkedin connections or something at least yeah i think that's acceptable it's just like are okay. you guys like really close personal friends or whatever and honestly for example like one of the realms that i publish in a lot is like the conservation of endangered hawaiian water birds like there aren't <laughs> a lot of people in that field yeah. You know, like almost almost any paper that anyone writes on that topic, it usually ends up on my desk to review. And so like there are people that I know that I have to just I'm like, all right, well, like I like this person, but I'm just gonna read this objectively. You know, I'm not yeah. gonna pay attention to how I feel about this person, or how they're gonna feel. Why and why I, don't they I, I the author the names? Others. They do. Yeah. Sometimes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Some journals do. It's called it's called double blind review. The reviewers yeah. don't know who the authors are, the authors don't know who the reviewers are. That is, that yeah, is that seems that like a pretty obvious do. step to take. Okay. It is that a really sense. obvious step to take. Again, I don't want to be on a soapbox. Like, journals <laughs> should do this. There are a lot of statistics showing that, like, people with, like, less Anglo-sounding names and people with, I don't know, mm -hmm. female names, like, are less likely to get published and more likely to get reviewed harshly uh, when when there's no double-line process. Because people yep. are jerks and we have these cultural biases and it's so much crap, but it's a real thing. And I totally agree. I think double blind is absolutely yeah. the way to go. Um, I don't see it that often. I review for a lot of journals and I don't, I, I usually know who the authors okay, are. Okay, um, well. One thing that people will do as reviewers sometimes, not to get too off topic, but sometimes there's actually a movement for like more ethical review and like accountable review where people will uh -huh. put their names at the bottom of the review. Cool. Like, like they are anonymous, but they they, they de-anonymize themselves because they're like, no, I want to be accountable for my actions, my judgments. Because some people will be like, mm -hmm. like a very small minority of people, but some people will be very mean and nasty in their reviews because they're anonymous. <laughs> right. And so some people yeah, I can totally themselves. imagine that. And I know this is a little bit separate, but like when the GRFP decisions came out earlier this year, I remember seeing a ton of drama on Twitter from people being like, some of some reviewers just straight up didn't give feedback or gave like mm -hmm. a three word review or something mm -hmm. where like, yeah, I know you're not paid and I know that you're overworked, but like that is completely unacceptable for the amount of work that someone put into this. And I mm -hmm. think that sort of behavior would probably diminish if maybe maybe we start out double blind and then there's like a big curtain reveal at the end where everyone figures out who you are. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Of course, the reason that reviewers are anonymous is to, is to protect them from potential like professional retaliation or anything like that. Like sure. sometimes, yeah, you you're sometimes you're not being a jerk, and something's wrong right. with the science, yeah. and you have to say that. But that person might hate you for the rest of your life, and maybe they review something of yours and they decide to take revenge on you, right? So, like, yeah. I think there is a good reason that it's there, but I think that sometimes you know it. it double blind is what we need, really. I think we just need to not know who the others are and not know the reviews are. And then yeah. if people are jerks, they're jerks. And some of that's on the editor too. The editors have to be able to vet stuff and be like, listen, you know, they don't, this doesn't ever happen because reviewers are volunteers, but like maybe editors have to be like, hey, I, I think you're really rude there or I'm going to edit this or whatever. But anyway, that's yeah. way, way off topic. 
Um, peer review. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. Then so you're you're not bench rejected. Hooray! Now we're off to the peer yes, review. Sorry, yes. So yes. Now you wait. <laughs> right. And then and then at yes. some point you get your reviews back. And now you're editing again. Well, it depends. So, okay. okay, one tiny, tiny step back. I'm sorry to always do this. This is just how I work, I guess. But the other thing with suggesting reviewers, you can also suggest people who you do not want to review your paper. Oh. And so, like, no, but really, like, you if, you have, if you have, what's that? Why would you do that? If you have reason to believe that someone wouldn't be fair, if maybe mm. they don't like you, I, I don't, I don't I, think I, I really have that. this problem. But like, yeah. there are people, you know, especially when you're like later career, I think you've had lots of time to like interact with people and maybe make enemies, you know? Uh, yeah, I, that, that's typical. If someone's not gonna be fair, or if you think that they, like if you had reviews from them in the past that you didn't find helpful and you thought they didn't even do a good, do a good job, yeah. that might be a reason like, you know what, mm, no. Or again, if you know that this person knows you really well, and you yeah. know that they're going to refuse because they know you and they're being ethical, then you can say up front, like, I know this guy, you know, you probably would have picked this guy or gal to review this, but please don't right. because like we have coffee every Sunday and like, we always talk about our shows together and like, we can't do this because we're friends. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so yeah, it, it, like, yeah, for me again, bringing up like Megan Parker might, might want to kind of be like, Hey, like she's one of yeah. my dearest mentors. Like, yeah. please. Right. And then you can keep don't them from wasting their time. Her. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah. Because it takes her time to write that email. It takes her her time to write back and be like, I can't do this. So you save them time. Because inevitably what happens is like, you know, this process takes between I think the the fastest I've ever gotten first round reviews back was maybe like three weeks. Um, the slowest was I don't even know, like eight months. Like that's that's unacceptable, but it happens. So and what's going on in that process is they have all the materials based on what you've suggested or not. They go on to search for reviewers. They try to get usually somewhere between one and three. One and four is a lot, but you know, usually two to three reviewers is typical. First of all, they have to get they have to get those people to agree, which can take a long time. So that can be a couple of weeks. And then they usually give those people about three weeks to do the review. So then most people have to yeah. do the review. And maybe that takes three weeks. Maybe those people are super busy and they have to get extensions and extensions and whatever. So this can really stretch out depending on what happens with review, but eventually you get your first rounds of review back. Now the editor has also reviewed your paper to a lesser extent. They read okay. the feedback that the, that you, that reviewers have given. And so I've been on both sides of this. So when I'm a reviewer, I give feedback both directly to the editor and to the reader, to the, to the um, writer. The authors. Okay. I typically just write everything to the authors and let the editors read it because I'm like, I don't have any secret crap to say. Like, I just want everyone to know yeah. what I think. But anyway, those are, those are two forms of review that they get back. The editor, the handling editor, then your, your shepherd, <laughs> I like that analogy. Your shepherd is then reading all those and they're like, all right, do we keep going or are we done? Okay. Uh, in, yeah. in two ways, right? You can be done like, like, oh, like everyone loved it and there are no problems. Let's just accept this paper. Um, that's about 0.008% of the time. Uh, never happened to me. <laughs> Actually, maybe once, but anyway, it's, it's extremely uncommon. We just had it happen with the IABC journal. but I, 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 Amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, they also are a very small journal um, and we've worked with them a lot. Um, 
I mean, either way, congratulations, because that's yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Great, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're saying so I, I should I... get really confident now? Because <laughs> that was maybe well, the one time well, in my career I, I get that. <laughs> let's 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 get into the confidence thing later, because I think you should be confident no matter what, Kayla. But we, I do, I want to touch on that further in like, okay. next okay, question. Okay, I'll maybe. put a pin in it. Okay, but okay, so everyone a little bit here. So okay, so. Um, now the associate editor, handling editor, shepherd editor has to decide what happens. Mm-hmm. Based on that feedback, they are either going to accept, which is extremely rare for the first round, or they are going to reject, which is reasonably common for the first round, depending on the journal. That could be like 70% of the time. Um, or they're going to suggest revisions. Okay. And so, and then typically most journals split that into major versus minor revisions. So my revisions is typically like, ah, oh, you know what? Like the, the reviewers had some really cool ideas for how you might be able to pitch this better. Or they thought, you know what? We'd really like it if you cited these five papers that you didn't cite because we think we're leaving out a major part of the, the literature here. Or, you know what? I really like it if you change the order of these two paragraphs. Or, hey, you forgot an I and that word and it looks funny because you spelled it wrong. Things like that. Those are minor yeah. revisions typically. And this is a, this is a slippery slope or whatever. Like, there's no clear distinction between the two. But minor is going to be like we expect you to be able to get this done really quick. Major is like you might need to redo some analyses. You might need to collect new data. You might need to totally rewrite several sections. So that's what major is. Major means you need to go back and do a lot more. Right okay. now, weird academic business crap okay this is gonna get a little weird so a new <laughs> a new flavor of journal response that has become incredibly popular recently with the advent of very for-profit driven journals is yeah. reject and resubmit okay i agree so so let's say that you got lucky and you either got major or minor revisions. In my opinion, those are both lucky outcomes. That means that they liked your paper, they're probably willing to accept it in the future, you just have to do what the reviewers said to change. And the editor will be an intermediate. The editor will say, you know what? Uh, I think you should at the very least do these X, Y, Z things that that reviewers want to and three said to do. The stuff that reviewer three said on the side, I I don't really care about that so much, but maybe do these things that they said. Or they might say, I want you to do everything the reviewers said. Okay. If you are in that lucky ducky situation, now you do have a time limit. Now you okay. are expected to get these things done in a certain amount of time, and they will tell you the date. Like you need to get this crap done at this time. So you have to do those revisions. You usually have to do it like track changes to show where all your changes are, and you have to write a letter of response where you respond to each point that all the reviewers made, and you say, like, they said I should do this. I agree okay. because blank. I did it on lines 27 to 43. Look, 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 check it out. I did it. See? Wow. I did it. Okay, okay, next one. See? I did the thing that they said. You have to say that for each one. Or, which you can do as a scientist, you can be like, you know what? I actually disagree with their point here. Here's why. Here's a citation to back it up. Yeah. I think that's dumb. But you have to you have to account for every single one unless an editor specifically tells you, don't worry about that, which doesn't happen often. Okay, so that's that process. All that has to be done usually in... I don't know. I think two to four months is usually pretty typical. Okay. Okay. You can absolutely ask for extensions. It's not college. 
else, right? Like they're not going to give you an F. But now you're, you know, teetering on the edge of like, oh, well, if they run out of patience with me, I'm going to have to start from square one and go submit to a new journal. Right. Yeah. So usually you want to get on it. You know, I, I usually get this stuff done quick unless it's just massive and I have to go out and do another field yeah, season. Yeah, you don't right? want to push Which your luck. Yeah. Okay. So as we can see, this process takes time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you go through all that, you do all the revisions, and then the reviews come back and they want more revisions. And so now suddenly... Maybe it's another month. Maybe it's another two months. Maybe it's way more, right? And that depends. Like, did the same people read it, or did the editor get desperate because no one answers emails, and he had to he or she had to bring in someone new to review? Right. And then that person had all new ideas, right? That could happen. Oh, no. This is why one of yeah. my papers took like a year and a half to get published from submission. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. But side question: Do yep. <laughs> Do the reviewers see each other's suggestions? And what happens if two different reviewers have two different opinions about what needs to happen? Like, what if one says, I, I, like, I, I'm going to pick something ridiculously mundane, but like, I hate the formatting of your graphs, um, change it this way. And the other one says, I love the formatting of your graphs. That was the best part of the paper. Like, I don't know. What yeah. do you do? <laughs> Does that so, happen? You, so the reviewers, you know, the reviewers, at least on the first try or so, are doing it at the same time usually. So, in, in, you know, if I'm a reviewer, usually I cannot see what the other person, other people have right. said, unless they have, unless there's already been around and I got brought on late, which I, I've been like kind of the rescue reviewer a few times too. Um, or if like I'm just, you know, if they did it two days after getting the invitation and I did it the last Sunday of three weeks, right? Uh, then I might be able to view what they wrote, but usually I don't think I can. Um, unless we're in further along rounds of review. So that's the editor's job. The, your shepherd okay. is supposed yeah. to be working with you and the reviewers to make sure that works. And if they see stuff that contradicts, they should catch that. And they should tell you like, hey, I want you to go with reviewer A and, or reviewer one and not reviewer two on this. If they don't catch that, you have to bring it up in your response letter and be like, listen, okay. you guys told me two different things. I agree with reviewer one, so I did what they said. Or I think they're both full of baloney. Here's why. But that's, yeah. that's you, because you're writing to the editor at that point. It takes a village to keep canine conservationists running. One of our valued team members is Sunny Murphy, who runs Black Flower Content Writing. Sunny started out as a volunteer creating infographics based on our podcast episodes, but quickly earned her place as a paid member of the team. If you need a creative, enthusiastic voice to help your company or nonprofit with blog writing, social media planning, and or email newsletter campaigns, check out Black Flower Writing Services. I cannot recommend Sunny highly enough. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. Um, yeah, so that's that. So, okay, so so now if we zoom back out one level, <laughs> we get to how long this process takes, right? Yeah. If you're doing revisions, it can really stretch out, especially if reviewers are really dragging their butts or if some of them just quit and you have to get new ones and they have to, you know, you have to get them up to speed. That can take a lot. We start bringing in what I call rescue reviewers. It can also be really problematic and they can, they can anti-help, anti-rescue a bit too. So... <laughs> Because of that, journals don't, if you're running a journal for profit, you don't want this to take a long time for two reasons. One, right. you're not going to get the profit of having the material out there. And two, a lot of these journals actually have statistics that they use to compete for the attention of scientific authors. One of them is impact factor, which is like yep. some metric relating to like 
how often the average paper in that journal gets cited or how many times in a certain amount of time. Okay. And so a really high impact factor means like, yeah, if I publish there, my stuff's more likely to get read and cited. That's awesome. I want to publish there. Right. So mm-hmm. journals will, that's, that's usually what people compete about. And there's a whole stupid culture around it, but that's a thing. Another thing <laughs> is the, the time to publication. Mm-hmm. If a journal can tell you like, dude, if we like your paper, we'll get you published in four months or something. Like, Everyone's going to want to publish there. That's a, that's you know because academics are under pressure, they, big time. So those are those are two of the main statistics they are using. So now we have to get into the brains of the for-profit journals to understand why this stupid rejected resubmit exists. You can now see how the revision process makes stuff really take a long time. Oh no! Yeah, uh-huh. so now they yes, get to exactly. say, yes. yeah, yeah. So now they get to yes. say our average time to publication from is you know three months, but it's actually because they rejected you. You spent a year and a half fixing it, resubmitted, and now it's three months. Bingo! Nailed it. <sighs> yes, yes. Wait. I know it sucks, but yeah. yeah. So. So that we has led, yeah, a lot of people are not happy about it, but that's what's been happening like 90% yeah. of the time nowadays is like most papers, even if the revisions aren't that huge, they'll be like, we're going to reject and resubmit this. We'd really encourage you to send it back to us. Just change these things. And that's code for, listen, this is probably fine. We need you to change a bunch of stuff and we don't want to wait around for you to do it and have our statistics run up. So can we just lie and pretend this is the first time you submitted it like later on when you fix it? That's really what they're doing. Uh, so yeah, Ooh. so that's the fourth new flavor of a fourth or fifth new flavor of what you can get back from a journal is a reject and resubmit. And I will say right now, that is absolutely the most common thing that most people get besides rejection outright okay. is now reject and resubmit. Okay. I think now I, the last question I have written down is then after your paper is published, um, what is kind of normal for promotion and sharing like i know i've heard um so this made some huge waves in the dog world you probably missed it because you're luckily not in the same facebook vortexes as me um (laughs) is recently there was a big article that came out that basically was a huge meta-analysis of a bunch uh, not meta-analysis it was a huge analysis of a bunch of genetic markers and behavioral traits from surveys from pet dogs and the big headline that broke everyone's brain was genetics don't predict behavior Breed does not predict behavior in dogs. Everyone freaked out about it. Um, the big thing that everyone probably, and again, all of our listeners who are already familiar with this, or already probably are familiar with this, a lot of the things they were looking at in it um, that then the headlines ran away with were things that you wouldn't expect Breed to predict anyway. So they weren't looking at like herding ability. They were looking at like, does your dog spin around three times before he lies down? Um, so anyway, okay. that is, so then I heard a bunch of really good podcasts, which we can link to in the show notes, of the authors then going on these podcasts or publishing these articles, kind of remedying what, you know, like the Wall Street Journal or whoever wrote, not the Wall Street Journal, I don't know. There were these big publications that picked up the paper mm-hmm. and screwed mm-hmm. it up. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of correcting the record on it and re-injecting nuance into the discussion. But... I was really wondering, you know, if you don't have something like that, where you have this like media blowout that really requires the authors to get out and work, uh, you know, work the papers to try to remedy things, how much public uh, promotion and like, you know, sharing of information is allowed? When does it become frowned upon where it's too much self promotion? You know, if you want to be able to share your findings somewhere and, you know, the journal yeah. has it paywalled for 45 bucks a read, 
you know, what is allowed after okay, you've published? Sure. Or do you just have to, like, kiss that stuff goodbye and you don't get to share it anymore? These are really, this is a fantastic line of, of discussion here. So, legally speaking, for most journals, when you do finally get accepted and you go through all the process of looking at the proofs and make sure everything looks nice and you work with like the copy editors and then finally it's like, yeah, we are accepting this. We're going to publish it now. You typically have to sign the rights to your work over to the journal. So okay. they technically have a copyright on it. You have the option increasingly nowadays because it's such an incredibly good business model uh, slash somewhat unethical, but still business model to usually you have the option of paying several thousand dollars to have your paper be open access. So if you want to publish that, like some of the top journals like nature and science and some other ones I won't name, and you want to be open access, you have to basically pay like a used car, maybe oh my 15,000, sometimes more. What? This is, this is well, I don't, I, I should not get on my soapbox right now. No, <laughs> just, no, no, just, I'm going to leave it at that. Or maybe we can okay. return to it, but like okay. a lot of these major, major journals or journal companies that run a bunch of journals for profit that do this open access business plan, uh -huh. they make bigger profit margins per dollar than Apple. Okay. I'll leave it at that. I'm sweating. Like I'm so angry right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, okay. but let's get to the good part. The parts that yeah. are maybe more feel good. So there are increasing and legal ways of sharing papers that you have published. Yeah. Even if they are behind a paywall, because you're right. I mean, if, if, if I was not part of the university of Georgia system and I wanted to read certain journals, I would have to pay like 60 bucks for a day pass to like read something. It's ridiculous. This is what we're running into with like half of our science highlights, like the amount of work I have yeah. to do to track down the full paper because I'm not affiliated with an academic institution. Right. And I've considered, you know, buying a pass to like journal A, but no, there, there is no conservation dog specific journal that really makes sense to like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make the investment yeah. in this one journal because it gets published everywhere. Yeah. Anyway. So the, the legality around this part is probably fuzzy and I don't want to get us in trouble, mm -hmm. but like, in my opinion, because it happens on such a small scale, you can always like email a friend of yours at an academic institution and be like, can you send sure. me a PDF yeah. of this paper? Whether or not that's legal, people do it all the time, and I don't think anyone has the time to like go after you for it. Yeah. The next one, which which is legal, is that like the authors of a paper are still allowed to send a PDF to whoever they want. Yeah. If someone asks me for any of my papers that I've published in any journal, it is I am within my rights to send in a PDF of that paper. That's fine. And so okay. I always say, yeah. like, email the corresponding author. If you really want to read a paper and you can't find it, email the corresponding author. ResearchGate is fantastic for this. They I was just going to say, I've had a really good luck on ResearchGate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And people are always excited to get an email from you being like, oh, my God, I want to see your paper. Also, this ResearchGate somehow figured that figured the legality of this out, too. You can put a, your shareable PDF of your paper onto ResearchGate, and other people can read it and download it, and it's okay for some yeah. reason. So. I love that. Yeah, love that. I love yes. ResearchGate <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, it's got its own really into it. But <laughs> <That's anyway>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so about promotion and stuff, right? That was the yeah. that was the bigger question. 
And really, that's okay, so just, maybe, maybe it'll help if I give like another kind of specific example. So say we publish this paper that we're hoping to publish. Now say we're invited to a conference and we want to post po like talk about our findings that are related to this paper. Um, you know, we're not going to be handing out the paper to everyone. We're not necessarily going to be lifting anything verbatim from the paper, but we are working with the same data set and the same research that we've already kind of done. Or maybe, you know, again, hopping on a podcast to talk about it or something like that. Like, what about those self-promotion things that aren't like literally sharing the paper, but working within that same research um, that you already did? Totally fine. Cool. That's great to hear. Yeah. Just, I mean, especially for, for purposes like that, that are more like broader education and sharing the yeah. work. Nobody minds that at all. The, okay. the issues come like if you made a pretty figure for okay. one of your papers and you publish it in journal ABCD and then you try to write a paper in journal XYZ and you want to use the exact same figure, you cannot do that without explicit permission from that journal. Gotcha. It's that kind of thing. Um, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and that's, yeah. I mean, that sounds actually relatively similar to the other, like, broader kind of publishing world. Like, I'm not exactly. allowed to double submit the same article to different freelance exactly. places, but I have yeah. definitely written an article on how to kennel train a dog to four or five different art uh, publications. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that gets, in academia, that gets... You know, you can't you can't publish the same results and same analyses on the same data in multiple places. Yeah. Someone will catch that, and that's really big trouble. That's like scientific ignominy for the rest of your life. That's oh real no, yeah, um, yeah. So you can't. You know, just, that's just completely illegal. I mean, you just can't. It's unethical, yeah, right? Because you. But but you can analyze maybe the same data set in a different way, telling a yeah. different story, learning something new. And all you have to do is like make sure that you're not publishing anything that has already been published in another journal when you do it. Yeah, right? that makes but, sense. But, yeah, and even I mean, I think the the analogy falls apart a little bit. But like, for example, when I've done the the kennel training articles or whatever, like they all have a different headline. And a lot of times, I do try to. And even if you like go on journey dog training under kennel training, I have an article on like my puppy won't stop peeing in his crate. My puppy won't stop barking in his crate. My puppy hates his crate. You know, they're all. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Broadly, you know, it's all about crate training, but they're actually kind of taking it at different angles and like fundamentally the solution is often similar and like a lot of the meat of the article is a similar approach, but it's kind of packaged in a different way and written okay. for a different audience. Yeah, that's way more okay, yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, Just I, I, the same data. Mm -hmm, okay, that's good to hear because I think like, I think one of the things that I as someone who so often runs into paywalls, um, it would be really important to me, it is really important to me um, going forward to try to make sure that some of this stuff can get communicated. So here's another one that maybe, so, okay, so say um, Dr. Jessica Heckman, she's one, uh, she's going to be on the show shortly before you. She was one of the authors yes. on this big dog genomics paper. Um, we weren't talking about the paper, but we love her. Say she wanted to take to her personal blog and write a very, you know, SciComm oriented explainer of the paper. Mm -hmm. Is that allowed? Are you allowed to do that as well? Oh, yeah. 
Okay, that's yeah. Fair. I mean, if okay. anything, that's you know, if you think my about biggest it, fear. <laughs> so I'm just sure. like, I just want to be able to like also make sure that like normies who, you know, a can mm-hmm. understand it because navigating this stuff uh, and reading scientific papers is absolutely a skill that many of us, you know, are not fluent in. And then mm-hmm. two, you know, the freaking paywall. Um, yeah. You know, so it would be really important to me to be able to have the opportunity to share maybe kind of two different versions where one is the one that I own. It's very SciComm focused mm-hmm. and that is kind of what's shared with the broader public. And then all the scientists can read, you know, the, the stuff that went through R. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know where the line falls in terms of like, whether you can use the exact figures you used for the paper. Yeah. I'm, I'm unsure of that. Um, but certainly like, Right, like the like, if you're lucky, the popular press gets a hold of your paper if it's exciting enough, and they're going to talk about its conclusions all over the place, and that's not illegal. Um, if anything, that that really helps the journal out because more people are aware of your paper, and more people might cite it in the future. So, as far as most of the for-profit journals are, are concerned, that's a form of free advertising, so long as you're not like giving away everything that would be in the actual published paper, so people won't have I to see. read it, kind yeah. of thing. But. No, all of those kinds of publicity, in my opinion, are things that need to happen more. There needs to be more translation to the general public than there currently okay. is. And the reason is that it isn't happening, and the reason it isn't happening isn't because it's not allowed or it's frowned upon or it's like crass or something. Correct. I think that okay. there are probably quite a few further along, more advanced career scientists who maybe think that it's kind of like too millennial or zoomer for them to be doing Mm -hmm. uh or it's like you know they just they just don't think it's like important for science or or they're they're i know lots of older professionals who are just terrified of doing it they don't want to be on social media because people are mean and we're all nerds and we're introverts and we don't want to deal with that Mm -hmm. so there's lots of reasons why people don't do it but it doesn't but none of them are because it's illegal as far as i understand it okay and sometimes This is another Avengers thing. Sometimes you just need to like hook up with some people who are really great psychomers and have them spread the word about what you do, right? I see an increasing number of scientists going on podcasts to talk about their research. Um, you know, sometimes specifically with one or two papers to yeah. to get the the word out. And that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Okay, um, last question. Is there anything that I missed as far as this kind of frantic discussion of how to get published um, that we need to come back to? Um, anything we need to expand on? Anything that I just didn't ask about because I don't even know what I don't know yet? Hmm. Gosh. I think we've done pretty well here. I mean, this is... I was I was involved in a seminar for graduate students at, at UGA last last spring that was like part of it was supposed to be like, you know, teaching people about this process. And I think we have managed to cover like a semester worth of stuff <laughs> on, on this topic already, which is fantastic. No, I don't I don't think so. I think that those are really the basics. I'd be certainly okay. very interested in hearing, you know, listener questions if people have follow ups yeah. to this. You know, we could always talk more i think this is a pretty infinite topic and it's very very interesting but i think we've we've really covered the the basics and that's hard to do so bravo yeah (laughs) well yeah no i appreciate it i I literally could not have done it without you um which isn't always the case with this podcast i definitely have done some interviews where i bring on an expert because they'll do it better than me um 
but I could have done it without them. And this is absolutely sure. something I could not have done without you. Um, okay. Well, I guess maybe then the last thing, are there any, you know, you just mentioned the seminar. Do you know if there are any online seminars or workshops or mentoring groups or anything that people should consider looking at? Um, because again, I think one of the things that is relatively true for a lot of our listeners is many of them are not academics embedded in academia. Yeah. We are adjacent, right. we are helpful, we want to be involved, but we're not, again, we're not in like a building on a college campus where this mm -hmm. is uh, something we can just walk over to find out more about. I have to say that in my personal experience, everything I have learned about this process has been either firsthand or mm -hmm or um, what would you call that kind of like informal professional mentoring with okay. mentors so of mine. Someone's got to do a Just, master class on that. Come on. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's, it's, who knows? Yeah. You know, if, in the last 10 years, that could easily have come up somewhere. I have never Google searched it because yeah. I know all this stuff now, so I don't think about it. But That's true. But Maybe I'll, I'll spend surprised. a little bit of time. I'll see if I can find anything to throw into the show notes for people to check out. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I really, there are enough people nowadays. There are enough like clever, interesting, community-minded grad students and stuff like that who have been taking the time to make resources like that for other people with things like statistical analysis, like mm -hmm. it, for anybody who's interested in learning some basic R and stuff and uh, whatever. There's, there's a really cool nonprofit I think it's a nonprofit <laughs> called data carpentry org. Yeah. And they do awesome stuff for like tutorials, learning R and some of them are ecology focused and some of them are other stuff focused, like check them out. You know, I'm sure there's something like that for the academic publishing process, but maybe not. It's a weird set of skills. It's a very weird set yeah. of skills. Yeah. Um, but now from this day forward, from henceforth, Kayla, <laughs> this podcast will be a resource yeah. for anyone who wants to talk about this stuff. Cause I, yeah, and we will, rare. um, I've been making sure to get um, transcripts up from the episodes almost the almost always the same day the episode is published. So for a lot okay. of this stuff where maybe you want to be able to go back and be like, what was the thing he said about the, mm. you know, the, the research factors or whatever? Like you can go back and just, you know, command F that on your on your computer and oh, you can wow. find that um, and then or if you're kind of if you can't remember the term or whatever, um, I think the transcripts for this sort of episode are going to be really helpful as an easier way for people to refer back. And the transcripts have timestamps too, so then you wow. can kind of, you can toggle back and forth between the transcript and the episode if that's helpful for you. Um, that's fantastic. Because yeah. I know this is the sort of thing that like I'll be listening to an episode like this while I'm driving or running or biking. I never listen to podcasts when I'm sitting around and can easily take notes on stuff. Mm. You know, and then I'm in this situation where I'm trying to remember, like, gosh, they mentioned the, like, four important factors for, you know, or the five different outcomes that could happen with a paper post-submission. But I'm driving 60 miles an hour down the highway right now. I'm not taking notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. Beautiful. Well, that's a fantastic resource. So, yeah. I have to share this. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Charles, thank you so much for spending your Saturday morning um, helping us figure out how to navigate the wild world of academic publication. Um, where would you like to be found online if anyone wants to uh, come ask you any more questions or uh, just follow you? Oh, for sure. Well, so my, my professional uh, sort of me-oriented website is vanreesconservation.com, and there you can learn about my research and 
sort of where I've been and some of my previous experiences. You can find stuff on my science communication. You can find uh, the papers I've published, <laughs> for instance, um, thematically re relevant. I also run the blog Gulo in Nature, which is a natural history and nature education and outdoor advice blog. Um, it's kind of been my little baby and my passion project recently. So uh, if, if you like what I do, you are interested. Well, it's it's a baby. It's a growing. It's a toddler now, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you, of course, for saying it. But uh, yeah, definitely. I I could I am always super grateful for any support or sharing or people who just want to see what that blog's about and, and give me feedback on things they'd like to learn about in nature. Um, it's absolutely, it brings a lot of joy to my heart. And so I'm always excited to share it with people. Um, for social media and things, you can find me on Twitter at Gulo Thoughts, which is where I'm pretty active and somewhat less active, but still communicative on Instagram at Gulo Shots. And the Gulo and Nature blog, I think, is also uh, probably an easier way to get in touch with me on Instagram. And that's just Gulo in Nature. Excellent. Yeah. And you have a TikTok, but I think I am your only follower. Uh <laughs> yeah, no, I've done absolutely nothing on there. That's going to have to wait. <laughs> TikTok's a nightmare. I, uh, yeah, TikTok is a hobby, not an outreach uh, venue for me at this point. <laughs> Um, well, Charles, as always, thank you so much for coming on. Um, for everyone at home, I hope you're inspired to uh, maybe instead of getting outside and being a canine conservationist, maybe it's time to sit down and crunch some data and get a paper published <laughs> instead. A uh, little bit less fun of a sign-off, but more relevant. Um, as always, if you've got a chance, please go ahead and rate and review the podcast. It helps um, other people find us, helps kind of share the word. Um, and particularly with this episode, share it with some other young scientists in your life. Um, we'll be back in your earbuds next week and uh, looking forward to talk to you all more. Bye. <laughs>